Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, continued 2. We have now completed studying seven of the Beatitudes. Now, it is usually said that there are eight of them. Some Bible commentators say there are nine, others say there are ten. Now, my position is that the separating away of the first several verses of Matthew chapter 5 and getting it a title, the Beatitudes, is artificial in the first place. Uh, the downside of doing this is that it, it can give us this impression that this decoupling of them from the rest of his Sermon on the Mount was Christ's intent. It certainly was not. Essentially, Jesus was looking out at his enormous crowd and directly addressing them by offering a blessing that described the group in general, and in some cases it referred to certain segments of it, the poor in spirit, the essence, for example. So we won't get into a debate on just how many of the so-called Beatitudes there are, because it's unimportant for studying Yeshua's seminal speech. But for the sake of continuity, just to make it easier for us to study and, and not confuse matters, we're going to follow the traditional Christian outline of the opening verses. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to read a few verses. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1228. We're going to read verses 10 through 16. How blessed are those who are persecuted, because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you, because you follow me. Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out for people to trample on. You are a light for the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it with a bowl but they put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. The eighth beatitude is contained in verse 10. Now, nothing like this is in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, which further points to the two sermons being different speeches spoken at different times in different places. Matthew 5.10, How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now the word persecuted is rather standard in English Bibles, and it is regularly used in the New Testament, and it is not wrongly translated. However, in modern times, we view the term persecution as nearly synonymous with strenuous oppression, often involving violence. That is, persecution is something quite severe in which one's life is either greatly hindered or maybe even put in danger. Now the Greek word is dioko. If the various Greek lexicons are consulted, we're going to find a rather long definition for this word because it carries a, a, quite a range of different meanings. So in our time, I think a better word is probably harassed perhaps even made fun of, maybe ridiculed. 
all of those, I think, captures another aspect of it. It's not that this term dioko, persecution, can't at some point rise to a meaning of true, virulent oppression and harm, but see, that's kind of the, the far end of the scale of the word's intention. And that meaning is not something that most believers in Christ's day faced, nor do the majority of believers face today, while acknowledging that there are parts of the world, especially where there are Muslim majorities, in which life as, a, as believers is under daily threat. So to help us better understand what Yeshua is telling us, I'm going to repeat this verse using a word that, that history shows us is closer to what He meant to communicate to the crowd. So just hear it this way. How blessed are those who are harassed because they pursue righteousness, for the Kingdom of Heaven is theirs. Now regardless of precisely how to transmit the idea of persecution in, in modern terms, the point of the verse is, there is cost to pursuing righteousness. But the next question is, what form or display of righteousness is this referring to? Every Jew in that era, era, era pardon me, would tell you they're pursuing righteousness. Every Jew would. It was just part of their unique culture. By observing the Torah, the Sabbaths, the feasts, praying, and in at least the last couple of centuries, following the traditions, going to synagogue, along with generally being a good person. See, this all would have represented the popular Jewish understanding of pursuing righteousness. To put a finer point to it, righteousness was wrapped up in behavior. Complicating the matter was that there were several distinct and competing sects of Jews who had formed varying interpretations of the Torah, and so each sect acted out Jewish tradition and God's commandments somewhat differently from one another. In fact, these differences in doctrines sometimes led to very serious confrontations. So if Yeshua's final few words of this beatitude had not been spoken, no doubt it would have been somewhat difficult for His listeners to take the concept of the pursuit of righteousness any other way than precisely how one behaved in everyday life, and how and in how fastidiously they might observe Torah rituals and commandments. When Yeshua completed His statement with, For the Kingdom of Heaven is theirs, it changed the focus. It changed the source of that righteousness from earth to heaven, from humans to God, even if a goodly part of that crowd didn't understand the implications. Our human righteousness is indeed based on rules following and behavior. That's not a kind of righteousness that can save us. Even though righteous behavior, righteous rules following, is certainly an ongoing expectation that God has of His worshipers. Human-based righteousness is a kind that our own devotion and focus and determination can achieve, but it does not because it cannot join us to the Kingdom of Heaven. On the other hand, God's perfect righteousness is part of His substance. It's at the center of His will, of His plan, of His unique ability to save and to restore. God's righteousness can't be duplicated. 
It can't be replicated by humans. It can only be given to each of us as a free gift of the Father's love. The agent that brings this divine gift of loving salvation to mankind is God's Son, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, for those of us living today who were born, let's say, in the mid to early part of the 20th century and living in the West, you know, it's hard to accept that now in the early part of the 21st century, being a believer is starting to bear a tangible cost, which we could never have anticipated. Being a believer is no longer an accepted cultural norm, nor is it as widely popular. When I was a younger man, professing to be a Christian, Christian whether you really were or you're not, you weren't, was the expected. In fact, the terms American and Christian were very nearly organically linked. One of the first questions a person might be asked when meeting someone in the local community is, what church do you go to? The answer would only rarely be, I don't go to church or I don't believe in God. Today asking such a question is fraught with negative social implications. Being a believer in Christ is openly criticized in our education system, ridiculed by the mainstream media, and outright rejected and slandered by some of our top-level political leadership. It is even called a threat to peace and tolerance by global interests. The general expectation upon Judeo-Christianity has become more of an insistence that our faith is to be compartmentalized, it's to be unspoken, it's to be unrealized in public and manifested only while we're in church or synagogue or within the privacy of our own homes. As a result, our beliefs in the God of Israel and in our Savior Yeshua are something we have kind of become prone to being silent about. We keep it to ourselves for fear of confrontation or finding ourselves on the wrong side of the flow and the political correctness of our society. Now I tell you this so that you can see how this eighth beatitude can be applied to us in our time, but also the similarity to how it was for those who heard Christ speaking firsthand. From the Peshat interpretation and sense, Yeshua was telling His first century listeners that the harassment that they would receive for pursuing God's saving righteousness would be rewarded in their membership to the Kingdom of Heaven. Now what those listeners didn't yet understand was that this pursuit that would begin with repenting of sins would then involve turning to God by means of trusting Yeshua as Savior and Lord. Although after a couple more statements, Jesus would heavily imply that following Him was the key. Once the Jewish folks did that, it was automatic that they would be ridiculed and harassed by both the temple and the synagogue leadership and the bulk of Jewish society. After some years passed, the harassment of Yeshua followers would indeed escalate into oppression and violence against them. In fact, Yeshua prophesied that this would happen. And it's interesting who would be the first to threaten and advocate harm to the Messianic believers. Listen to Matthew 23, verses 29 to 34. Woe to you, hypocritical! 
Torah teachers and Pharisees. You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the Sadakim, the holy men, the righteous. And you say, had we lived when our fathers did, why, we would never have taken part in the killing of the prophets. In this you testify against yourselves, that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead! Finish what your father started. You snakes, sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehinom, to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Now, some of you will flog in your synagogues and you'll pursue from town to town. Yeshua says that it will be the religious leadership of the synagogue that will lead the way in slandering and mistreating his Jewish followers. In the Remez interpretation sense, however, Yeshua's words in the Eighth Beatitude are referring to the end times, when believers will be hunted down and severely oppressed on a worldwide basis. That is, persecution for pursuing righteousness in Christ moves from mere harassment and ridicule, as it's happening now in the West, to persecution more as we think of the term, being hated, harmed, and murdered. In fact, as we know from Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Revelation, being a believer will eventually, in the end times, be officially considered as making us an enemy of the state, of global humanity. For now, in the West, the cost of pursuing righteousness is primarily ridicule mostly being incited by the cultural elite. Later, the cost may well be our jobs, our personal freedom, and then our lives. You know, I wonder, if so many of us are already reluctant to reveal our faith, and instead keeping silent, merely to avoid being called out at work, excluded from a desired social circle. What might we do when admission of faith could bring exclusion, exclusion, jail, or maybe even worse? Now, for those who say there is a ninth or maybe even tenth beatitude, these are contained in verses 11 and 12. Now, the commentators who claim nine beatitudes wrap verses 11 and 12 together as one beatitude. The relatively few commentators who claim ten beatitudes make verse 11 the ninth and verse 12 the tenth. Now, verse 11 seems to be saying very nearly the same thing as verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11 says, how blessed you are when people insult you, and persecute you, and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you, because you follow me." Now, the Greek word translated to persecute it is the same in, in both verses. So, as I explained earlier, dioko has a range of meanings, from something as mild as being ridiculed, to being followed and harassed, all the way up to being violently assaulted or killed. Now, I think the sense that we are to take its meaning in verse 10 is, is a little bit different than in verse 11. So, while verse 10 is primarily speaking about a kind of, I don't know, midpoint along the persecution scale, verse 11 is a little bit lower in its intensity, and it's not about serious threats or physical actions being taken against a believer. Rather, this is pointing to slanderous things 
that are said to discredit them, the leadership and the people, hurl insults and tell lies about believer, Jewish believers at the time of the Sermon on the Mount. For the first time in the final words of verse 11, Yeshua now ties firmly together these various forms and means of persecution as being the consequence of something. The consequence is of following Him. He says, because you follow Me. And since Beatitudes 4 and 8 both speak of some form of persecution that is the result of pursuing the kind of saving righteousness that Jesus is speaking about, then clearly He is saying that pursuit of Him is the pursuit of saving righteousness. That, my friends, is a bold and enormous claim that no doubt brought about a wide range of emotion and reaction in that huge crowd. From elation to anger, from fear to disappointment, maybe even befuddlement, this Yeshua fellow was either a liar, a madman, or someone very special that needed to be heard and accepted even if the folks couldn't absorb the meaning of all that He was saying. Well, doubling down on His incomparable promise, He goes so far as to say that all who will surely suffer from following Him will be rewarded in heaven. And why should they find that odd or suspect? After all, says Christ, the prophets of old, the God sent to Israel at various times throughout their history, suffered that same and worse for hearing and believing the divine truth, a truth that few, especially Israel's leaders, wanted to hear. Thus, rejoicing, that's the proper response for those who trust Yeshua and act upon that trust. Rejoicing is the proper mental attitude to, re- to maintain when knowing and speaking the truth, which likely reduces our popularity, and it causes us to be excluded from some of our friends, family, perhaps our fellow fellowship, our congregation. It may well be that our rejoicing will be muted down here, in the here and now, due to suffering. But at the same time, there is the greatest hope and a promise for a future in God's kingdom that is nothing but joy. Nothing but joy. You know, it's it's a bit challenging to ascertain what exactly the audience thought Yeshua was meaning about their being rewarded in heaven if they followed Him. See, our, our modern Christian thoughts instantly run towards what would happen to our souls after we die. And this due to a combination of church traditions and and some words of the New Testament. See, generally, the Christian thought is that for sure there is an afterlife that begins upon our death. If we are saved in Christ, then our souls immediately or eventually go to heaven and dwell with God. But that wasn't the thought of Jews in Christ's era. What happened after death for them was a frightening mystery. It was that same way to their religious leaders. Death was not a welcome thing. It was not a case of going home. It was not a case of going to a better place. Earnestly mourning the dead, that was the normal mode. It was certainly not having a celebration of life, as we often have at believers' funerals today. In the minds of those ancient Jews, the best condition for a person was to be among the living, because there was nothing good about being dead. So 
I surmise that the thoughts of the attendees at the Sermon on the Mount was that Messiah was talking about heaven, God in heaven, really, blessing them in some undefined way during their lives as a reward for following Yeshua, even if life likely would include being ridiculed and harassed by their fellow Jews. Now verse 13 moves us beyond the opening series of blessings that Yeshua pronounced upon the various groups of people who came, who came to hear, his, hear Him speak. There we read in verse 13, You are salt for the land, but if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but being thrown out for people to trample on. Now, there's more here than meets the eye. Some Bible commentators and scholars would classify this statement as a parable. I don't agree. And in later lessons, I'm, I'm going to speak extensively about the nature of parables, which will explain why I can't accept this verse as one. Rather, since this statement revolves around the object of salt, then salt is a metaphor or it's symbolic of something larger or it's both. Now, first of all, recall that the opening ten verses of the Sermon on the Mount were spoken to address the presence of the thousands who came to hear Yeshua speak. Each of those statements were made either to describe or to give recognition to the entire crowd in general or more often to call out and recognize specific groups within that crowd. Verse 13 is another instance of this, and it is a, a generalized statement to the crowd at large. Now, remembering who Jesus is speaking to is critical throughout this sermon. It is to Jews. Certainly, there were small smatterings of curious Gentiles and those of mixed blood and mixed religious loyalties that were present. But overall, we have a Jewish Jesus speaking to a thoroughly Jewish audience. Therefore, we must take His words in a Jewish religious and cultural context, and as a result, we must be prepared to understand the meaning of His statements in both the Peshat and the Ramez interpretation senses. Let's begin by dealing with a key word in the first part of this verse. In the complete Jewish Bible and in the Young's literal translation and a few other versions, we'll find that the general reference to those sitting before Yeshua is that they are salt for the land, meaning Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. The vast majority of Bible versions, however, choose it to mean that the audience is salt for the earth, that is, the entire planet. As Bible commentators tend to do, they demand that one interpretation is correct, the other is wrong, and so they debate incessantly about it. See, this is modern Western Greek thinking at work, and it has nothing to do with ancient Eastern Jewish thinking. Thus, we must consider the speaker, the audience, and the setting when deciding what the words mean. Now, let's lay that aside for, for a moment. The next matter is what the meaning of salt was to Christ and to His Jewish audience. See, it can be surprising that Salt in the Bible is an enormous subject. This is partly because, as so much does over time, the use of the term can evolve. So while it is not that there is no connection to what salt meant in Abraham's time, to what it meant in Moses' time, to what it meant in Yeshua's time, 
what it meant to the contemporary people Jesus was speaking to carries the most weight for what it needs to mean to us. Salt was, as a practical matter, very valuable and central to life in Abraham's and Moses' time. Unfortunately, it wasn't readily available or easily accessible to most people. Matter of fact, it carried as much value as we apply today for precious metals, like gold. So it was used as a medium of currency, salt was, in some cultures. It was a necessary ingredient in body chemistry to sustain life. It was a desired ingredient to flavor otherwise bland food. It was a preservative for meat and their food supply. It was used for healing wounds. It was used for skin conditions. Therefore, it took on a symbolic meaning. And so salt would even be given or exchanged as part of a covenant ceremony. Biblically, one of the attributes of salt was its use for purification. Levitical law requires that all sacrifices of meat have to be salted. Even grain and produce sacrifices that are to be burnt up on the altar have to be salted. Why? Well, it's not directly addressed in the Torah. Very probably, it had to do with both the matter of practicing the precise sacrificial ritual in obedience to the covenant of Moses, now remembering that it was an ancient tradition to exchange salt as part of a covenant ceremony, but also because salt was seen as an element of purification. And so by salting the sacrifices, they were further purified. Some Bible scholars say it was because salt was so important in the meals of the Israelites that naturally it would be included in the offering of food to God. I find that incredulous, because while pagans thought that their sacrifices were meant as food for their gods who would starve to death if their human subjects, I mean, if their human subjects didn't provide them with food, the Hebrews never thought they were feeding God. In fact, it was the priests who were able to keep the bulk of the sacrificed meat and produce to provide for themselves and their families. And this, by the way, was ordained in the Torah. In Christ's day, in the Holy Land region, salt was readily available. It was relatively cheap, and it was used by the ton, literally, the ton, for temple sacrificial rituals. The largest use of salt at the temple, in terms of amount, was for rubbing it on the meat that was to be sacrificed. It was utilized, you see, as an absorbent. In obedience to the law, that required removing the blood from a meat offering. So a batch of salt used in this way could be used one time, and then the bloody salt was thrown out. But there was a wonderful use for the tons and tons of now ritually impure salt. It was spread on the many roadways and pathways as a vegetation killer to keep these roads well maintained. So the final part of this verse where Yeshua says of salt that once it loses its taste, it's no longer good for anything except being thrown out for people to trample on. It's literally the way, way salt was used in his era. They all knew that. Now let's back up a little bit. The first words of verse 13 are, you are the salt of the land, meaning the holy land. The next words are, but if salt becomes tasteless. Now Christ is not speaking to several thousand Torah scholars. He's speaking to throngs of common folk. 
So he is using an illustration that everyday people would understand. And by Yeshua's day, the primary use of salt for those Jews not associated with the temple operations was to season food and to preserve food and for medical purposes. Now, interestingly, a curious Greek word is used to describe what happens to the salt that makes it no longer usable, and the word is moreno. Literally, it means <laughs> to become foolish. So, if we were to more literally translate the first part of verse 13, it would be, You are salt for the land, but if the salt becomes foolish, So, to translate moreno to mean tasteless is pretty dubious to me, unless it was a known expression in that era, and I have found no evidence of that among Jewish or Gentile scholarship. Having Jesus say tasteless has to be an educated guess from the translators. Now, it seems to me that a better way of understanding it, again, in our modern terms, is about what happens to salt that has become adulterated or contaminated in some way. So whether salt is used in everyday life to season and flavor food, or used in food as a meat preservative, or whether it's used for temple sacrifices, the broad idea is to explain what happens to salt that for whatever the reason, loses its ability to do what it was meant to do because it has become impure, adulterated, or contaminated. Bottom line, salt was a good, desired, needed thing for a number of common uses in Yeshua's time. So Yeshua says to the crowd of Jews who are coming for the purpose of healing, and for hearing this man's wisdom, that they are the ones who provide the good flavor to influence the people in a positive way. The good preservation of the land and the people and their God-ordained purpose as His set-apart people and land. And if they become contaminated with the false ways of some of their religious leaders, or they are corrupted, by the dazzling and advanced culture and beliefs of their Roman occupiers, then they're going to lose their purpose. And they're not, they're not going to gain it back. If that happens, then they are suitable only to be thrown on the ground and trampled into the dust for the purpose of poisoning the soil so that nothing can grow from it. Now, everything I've just explained to you is to interpret this passage and the Peshat, the simple sense. But in the Ramez sense, it transforms. It speaks of a larger purpose and scope. And since the Hebrew word Eretz, which is what the Greek word Ge is standing for, it can mean earth, it can mean land, then while in the Peshat sense it means the land of Israel, in the Ramez sense it expands to mean the earth, the entire planet. Thus the salt of the Jewish people rises from being salt only for the Jewish people in the Holy Land to salt for the whole Gentile world as well. And in such a larger capacity, if these Jews become adulterated in their ways and in their thinking, how can they bring purity and truth that God gave to them to the world? So in the Ramez sense, this is a sort of warning from Christ that in time, the Jews are going to have an opportunity to be salt for the world. But if they become contaminated, they're going to lose that opportunity. And they're going to become useless in God's hand. And when we are useless in God's hand, we pay an earthly price for that. For 18 or 19 centuries, that has generally been the outcome for the Jewish people. 
However, praise God, we are seeing this growing segment of Jewish society called Messianic Jews, believing Jews, realizing what has happened to their people and actively working to regain their saltiness and to reclaim their God-given purpose to lead all humanity back to the Lord. Therefore, back to the question I asked at the beginning of examining this important verse. Is this speaking of the Jews being salt only for the Holy Land or for the entire world? I said the Bible commentators say one answer is correct, the other is incorrect. I hope to have shown you that when we adopt the Eastern way of interpreting the Bible, which was produced from an Eastern thinking people, that in fact both answers are correct when placed in their proper historical setting. Now, verses 14 through 16 provide a complementary statement to the previous one. It uses the illustration of light to represent God's intended purpose for Yeshua's Jewish audience. Matthew 5 14 through 16, you are a light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it over with a bowl, but they put, place it on a lampstand so it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Here, Yeshua's statement clearly swells that hoped for Jewish influence to the world. And it's not just limited to the Holy Land. No doubt he is basing this thought upon the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Because this is nearly precisely the same message that Isaiah brought from the Lord seven centuries earlier. Listen to Isaiah 49, starting at verse 1. Coastlands, listen to me. Listen, you peoples far away, Adonai called me from the womb. Before I was born, He had spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, while hiding me in the shadow of His hand. He has made me like a sharpened arrow, while concealing me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, through whom I will show my glory. But I have said, well, I've toiled in vain and spent my strength for nothing, futility. Yet my cause is with Adonai and my reward is with God. So Adonai now says, He formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to have Israel gathered to him, so that I will be honored in the sight of Adonai my God, having become my strength. He has said it is not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the offspring of Israel, I'm going to make you a light to the nations so that my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. There it is. Therefore, the future time that God will make it Israel's task to be a light to the nations, an event that Isaiah prophesied has arrived. It's arrived, according to Christ. Folks, in its plain sense, Peshat, or in its literal sense, but with a hint at a deeper meaning, Remez, this is a call to action. The goal is that other people, Gentiles, will come to faith in the God of Israel. But in God's plan, it is Israel, Jews, that cannot be passive, but rather the light that God gave to them must be put before people. It must be. I mean, look at the final words of verse 16. There it says, So that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. This, this, is the truest evangelism. It is the most effective spreading of the good news. 
How does Jesus say it should be done? By letting other people see our good deeds. By letting others see how we praise the Father in heaven. In other words, it's not by speaking words, but by actively, actively living out our faith. Only doing it inside the walls of our church or our synagogue or our home, that's not sufficient. In this age when our faith just is not as popular or as admired as it once was. And in fact, we can find ourselves under verbal attack for it. That is not to discourage us from outwardly displaying it by doing good deeds and publicly praising God. Now, this is not to say, of course, that speaking the gospel is not to be done. It must be, and it's a necessary ingredient to effective evangelism. But words can be cheapened when there's no evidence of their truth in action to back it up. See, we have an English word, I think, well describes people or institutions that do this. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. I can't think of a word more used by those outside of Christianity to describe us than hypocrites, sometimes unjustly, sometimes quite justifiably. Why? Because we have not always displayed the truth in action. We've settled for merely advocating for it in words. Yeshua likens the way that His listeners should be a light to the world by saying it should be as if they were a city set on top of a mountain. He stays with the thoughts of Isaiah when He says this, starting with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word that Yeshiao, Isaiah, the son of Amotz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the Akhret HaYamim, the end of days, the mountain of Adonai's house will be established as the most important mountain. It will be regarded more highly than other hills, and all the Goyim, it's Gentiles and Gentile nations, will stream there. Many people will go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of Adonai to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways, we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion will go forth Torah, the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. Then they will hammer their swords into plow blades and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not rise, uh, raise swords at each other and there will no longer they will no longer learn war. Descendants of Jacob, come! Let's live in the light of Adonai. See, the Torah envisions the Gentiles, all the nations, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to learn God's Word. Thus, we must understand that in the Jewish mind, light carries a dual meaning, as it often does in the Western Gentile mind. See, there is a type of light that represents truth and knowledge and revelation. In English, we better call it enlightenment. Then there's a type of light that fills a dark space with visible light so that we can read and walk and work and eat and so on. The light on a hill, in a Peshat sense, is speaking, of, is speaking of something like a torch that's held up on a high place so it can be seen in all directions and for a long distance, like a signal fire. In the Ramez sense, this is speaking of God's enlightenment, His truth. And the hill is Mount Zion, 
in Jerusalem. And those who hold up the torch and who bring the divine truth to the world, who are they supposed to be according to this? The descendants of Jacob, the Israelites. Well, after telling the Jews to be a light, Yeshua cautions. What good does putting that light on a hill and then covering it over do so that no one is reached by it? What good does it do to hold a firm faith in the Father and in His Son and then keep it quiet and private? Because you encounter opposition. What does it say to have such a faith and have it bear no fruit in the form of good works and deeds? The early church father, Chrysostom, says this, You are a light of the world, not of a single nation nor of twenty cities, but the entire inhabited earth. You are like a light to the mind, far better than any particular sunbeam. Similarly, you are spiritual salt. First you are salt, then you are light. The metaphors of salt and light drive home the great benefit of these stinging words and the profit of this rigorous discipline. How it binds and does not permit us to be dissolute in our behavior. Having greeted now his great audience, having prepared them with blessing after blessing, having encouraged them in faith and divine purpose, Christ is about to present to them, to all of us, with the fulcrum, the balance point of his entire message. If any misses this, in some way disturbs it, intentionally dismisses it, or changes its plain meaning in order to create or support a false doctrine, or bypasses it in order to slander Yeshua or His people or God's Torah, then all the words of the Sermon on the Mount that came before it and come after it become tainted and out of context. That person who approaches this coming passage becomes like the salt that absorbs contamination and so becomes fit for nothing but to be thrown upon the ground and trampled underfoot. If you think these are harsh or severe words, just wait till next week when we open up with the 17th verse of the Sermon on the Mount.